Our scripture reading this evening is from Romans 15, 22 to 33. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, for that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I'm going to add on to that reading, because I think I didn't give the right verses. Um, well, I gave part of the right verses, but I'm going to be preaching on more than that. So uh, you could just listen, all right? This is from um, verse 15, and if you have your Bible with you, you can open that up and look at it. Chapter 15, uh, verse 15 and following. But on some points I've written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, that's, that from Jerusalem and all the way to Elycrium I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your ministry and mission. We thank you that you're the one that has gathered us here tonight. Whatever state we come in, whether it's full of expectation or very low expectation, whether we're brand new into looking into the Christian faith or whether we've heard it for so long, we need to be reminded of its beauty. We pray that you would work through your word which lives in the hearts of each of us here. In Christ's name, amen. Back in the fall, I was um, inspired by one of our staff members, Matt Miller, to post on the website Reddit. Any of you familiar with Reddit? 
Okay. You know, the way the, the post works is, uh, rather the website works, is you post on it, and then throughout, you know, the day they vote on whether or not your post should be amped up on the front page. And so this is what I posted. Grab a beer or coffee with a pastor and talk spirituality. Now, since that time, I've had several conversations with um, really some wonderful people, all who would identify as atheists or agnostic, and we've been meeting over the last months, and I hope those meetings will continue. Uh, I wasn't surprised by their sincerity, their good insights, their questions. What I was surprised by was the reaction that my post got. Um, it was about a couple hours into the day that Matt wrote me an email and said, have you looked at the website? Your post is blowing up on the website. I was like, what? And by the end of the day, it was number one with all the highest hits. And, uh, you know, some of it was, uh, well, it was, it, it was instructive to read the post. Um, you know, some you had people saying, hey, you know, this sounds like a really good thing. Go for it because I, I don't want to be part of it, but thanks, that's a good thing. Um, but then there were others that would um, basically say the opposite. For instance, uh, uh, one said to me, uh, how do you like lying to children for a living? Uh, so that was an, uh, an interesting comment. Uh, another was, listen, I've done this before with some pastor, and he just preached to me the whole time, do not do this. Another was actually from a seminarian who said, listen, they teach these ploys in seminary, don't go. And the reason the post got so, you know, because then they actually began to argue with one of them, uh, one another online, and my post just kept getting locked up, so it was on the front page. Um, but, you know, it was just a reminder to me about how we feel, and maybe you're, again, in this room, you're not a Christian, you're looking in the Christian faith, just what it feels like to hear the word evangelism or to meet with someone to talk about the Christian faith. There's just a lot of baggage attached to it. I was thinking about an article that appeared uh, last year in the Huffington Post during the campaign. And it was about uh, one, of the, one of the candidates who was traveling with a pastor who was saying to people, um, you know, you need to be saved. And I'm not saying he said it in the best tone, okay? But the, the name of the article was Christian proselytizing is a form of oppression. Uh, it's important to understand that there was a time where the Christian faith was relevant, a time where it then became irrelevant, and then a time where now it is seen by not a few number of people as harmful, as negative. And so as we talk about evangelism, that's an interesting observation. But what I found, I think, more intriguing is the effect that that has had upon Christians sharing their faith. I believe through experience over the, the, the last years, and I'll include myself as well, a greater reluctance to share their faith. Uh, fearfulness. Maybe it's in, afraid they're going to lose their job. Afraid they're going to lose some friends. Just uh, the um, dominant culture of pluralism. And say, for this reason, I, I believe that Christians are more hesitant probably than they've been in years to talk about what they believe in. Now, to take some heart from this, we can think about the book of Romans in the first century in Rome. Because if you know anything about the context, you know that Rome had its own religion, local deities, 
local gods, but it was really those gods, the loyalty to those gods was about keeping the state first, right? It'd be a similar thing in America where people put the God and America thing very close together and say, you know, if we're going to have America first, God has to be first. It was kind of that thing. And um, on top of that, there were other religions like Judaism and Christianity, and they would be tolerated, but as long as they put their belief underneath the state, as long as they would submit it and not believe it as the one and only thing. And it's in this situation that Paul is writing and preaching. It's before Christians are experiencing outright persecution, and you can read the Roman historian Tacitus about this, who documents the persecution. It's before that, but by Paul's words in verse 30 when he says, I need your prayers so I can be delivered from those that oppose, you can see that things are boiling. And of course, he had been persecuted before up to this point. So, all that's going on, and yet, for him, evangelism is the center of his life. Sharing his faith is at the center of his life in the midst of that cultural pressure and that danger. So this year, we've dedicated to this idea about knowing our faith and sharing our faith. And so I want to talk about how do we think about that in the moment that we're in, especially as we reflect on Paul's words here in the book of Romans. So we'll look at why evangelism is important and how it functions, how it works. So let's look at why. Something that... um, I think is really extraordinary about Paul, is Paul was no doubt the greatest theologian the Christian religion has ever known. And you would think, if I were the greatest theologian that the Christian faith had ever known, I would be like, that is my thing. You know, maybe you have something, it's your thing. You're really good at it, and people acknowledge that you're good at it, and that's your thing. Even though he is so gifted that way, there is nothing that turns him on more, nothing that gives him more joy and pleasure than seeing someone come into a relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's his greatest joy. It's his driving passion amidst all his gifts and all the things he has going. It's challenging to me. You see it in verse 18. It's implied when he says, I venture to speak only of the Christian gospel. It doesn't mean he didn't talk about other things, but this was the thing that he loved to talk about. Now, why was that? Two reasons. One, he understood the utter need for conversion. Now, that's, I know, uh, in itself a provocative statement. The utter need for conversion, for religious renewal, for evangelism. In the book of Romans, we've come across this word several times, acceptance. The idea of what does it mean to be accepted before God? And you find it here again as he's talking about the non-Jewish believers, the Gentiles, verse 16, where he says, I labor so that the Gentiles might be find acceptable before God. In our day and age, in modern day and age, we believe that people are automatically accepted before God. Everybody is accepted before God, unless you're like a really, really bad sinner. You're a terrorist, you're a dictator, you're an abuser, you know, no, but the rest of us, are acceptable automatically before God. And even more so, we believe that God is obligated to accept everybody. And if he doesn't accept everybody, he's unjust, and he's not a good God. And this then extends to religious belief, 
And the belief is if God is reasonable and just and good and sophisticated like us, he will accept all religions, all peaceful forms of religion. This is the climate that we're in today. It's a presumed acceptance. But there's still something underneath us that gets a little nervous with that idea. Because if you think about who God is, if, if he's God, if he's a God worth his salt, right? He is all good. He's all loving. He's morally pure. He's just. That's who we're wanting to keep company with. I don't know about you, but immediately I begin to go, you know, I'm not that good. Justice for me, yeah, it's important to me when it's not getting in the way of my convenience. Kindness, well, my family could tell you I'm not always kind. So this idea that I'm going to stand before God and presume acceptance, I'm not comfortable with that. Maybe you are. I'm not. In fact, as I look deeper in my heart, I see Romans 8, 7 that says there is hostility. I don't have fundamental hostility to God anymore because he's conquered me. But I'll tell you, I still see a little bit of a firefight every now and then. I don't want God to be ruling over me. And so the Christian faith pushes back on this idea that we're just automatically acceptable to God. What's sort of funny about this is we never treat one another that way, right? We're so, we're so dang critical, right? We would never say to someone, you're just automatically acceptable until you really get me mad or until you really do something wrong. But we, we have this sort of split-level living that we do. And so... The gospel teaches, the reality is, if you and I are going to stand before a perfectly good, holy, just God, he's going to need to extend forgiveness to us, and we're going to have to have repentance to him. We're going to have to own up and be honest. And this is the good news of the gospel. It's there. It's the only faith that would teach that no matter how bad you screwed up, even in that other group I talked about that we would write off, even that group has recourse to this gracious God. As they come before him and go, I come with empty hands. I come with no boast of my righteousness. I don't come here demanding that you accept me. I understand that I can only stand before you by grace. This is the gospel, and it happens through the Son who came. The gospel teaches that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came for that express purpose. He came to bear the guilt and judgment of a sinful world and to credit his righteousness to all believers' bank accounts so they are not acceptable based on how they feel each day. And unfortunately, that's how we live, Christians, right? I mean, if I said to you right now, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, professing believer in Jesus Christ, if I said, do you know right now that God is crazy stupid love over you? Maybe don't reference that movie too much in your mind. But my point is that God is crazy love for you right now. And that never changes. You probably go, I don't know. I feel that way. I don't know. But it says in the gospel, he's loved us with the same love that he loved his son. This is what he looks at. So this is the Christian gospel. And why was Paul so jazzed about sharing it? Because it was his story. Let me read this to you. He's writing to a mentee. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord Jesus just kind of trickled. No, it didn't trickle. It overflowed for me 
overflowed for me. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save really good people that believe every religion should be the same and as long as you, to save sinners. That's who he came to save. Sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Us. Paul's story was for us. He understood he needed the gospel. Christianity contains within its own message the motive for sharing it. It contains within its own message the motive for sharing it. What I'm saying is there is a tie that's it, it cannot be broken between someone's experience in that gospel and their desire to share it. And so if you and I find ourselves going, you know, I really don't feel that motivated to share it, the first question we have to ask is, what's broken about my experience with it? How is the grace of God not washing over me in a way where I just say, I got to tell this story? We do it with so many other things. So many other things that light us up. The grace of God was lighting him up. But there is also gratitude. That's the second part of the why. He says, to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me unpack that. The Apostle Paul definitely had special gifts in sharing his faith. He was the apostle to the world. Special gifts. And he had a special calling. And here he's talking about it in terms of a priestly calling, that God gave him an anointed royal calling to speak to the world of the gospel. And it might be easy at that point to go, this is for professionals. Even I could say, listen, I'm not an apostle, I'm just a pastor. But then, do you remember the benediction we, we do often in this church? Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. Every believer in Christ has this priestly role. One theologian has said, when you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Animal sacrifices are replaced by obedient Christians. The temple is replaced by the community of believers, and the priest by Christian or Christian ministers. That's the shift that is taken here. You know, animal sacrifices are gone. Now it's obedience and praise to God. And so Paul understands that his ministry to the Gentiles is along that way. There were two kind of offerings in the Old Testament. There were offerings for atonement, for sin. Jesus already fulfilled that one. But then there were offerings for honor and gratitude. And Paul is saying, this is the offering I'm talking about. I understand sharing my faith and seeing people come to faith to be a priestly offering that I give to God. And every one of us has that calling. And you ought to be encouraged by that. Because you have been a called, appointed, and even anointed for that calling. You don't have to wait for anything else. God has given you that very thing. So evangelism is not an add-on. It's fundamental. Paul, for Paul, he, he loved to, to go where no man had gone before, just like uh, 
James Kirk, but he was, he was going to places, he wanted to build on uh, no one's foundation. He wanted to go into places where, you know, they hadn't shared the gospel. And just as a little side about his strategy, because it's very relevant to what we do here. It's interesting in this passage, Paul said, because I planted a church in a city, my work was done. Well, how in the world could that happen? He could actually say, I'm done in this region. It's because he understood if I plant in the city, it's going to radiate out and the faith will radiate to other places. That's what he did. And you notice his church planting philosophy through Book of Acts, that's what he does. That's been part of the philosophy we've been doing here. Now, we didn't, there have been churches radiate, radiating out everywhere, but our thought was we want to start here and see God work out. And so this is why the need and the calling the need and the calling. But let's move on to how he does it, because that's very important. And I want to say two things here. One, it was holistic in witness. He says in verse 18, word and deed. I shared in word and deed. If one of those is missing, something's going to go wrong. If the word is missing, basically we will always divert into works righteousness religions. And that's what pluralism is, by the way. Pluralism is works righteousness. Because it's basically God is acceptable with everything. You even hear it when it says, if you're a peaceful religion and you're a sincere person and you just love people. Okay, well, there's the standard. Peace, sincerity, and love. Well, can you do that as well as God? Well, we've already talked about that. No, I can't either. And then he talks about the signs of power, signs, and miracles. Uh, at this point, I think it's tempting to go, well, see, I don't do those things. Uh, you, you know, I lately have not been, you know, the signs and wonders haven't been coming out too well, right? I've been trying, they're not working. Even if I had Daniel's wand, it, you know, it's not going to help me. Mickey's wand. By the way, I had a birthday at Disney World, and I bought a wand, too. So if Daniel needs someone to, if Daniel needs someone to bond, the only difference was I think I was 16. And... Uh, <laughs> He was four, so uh, anyway, but you know, the signs and miracles. Well, just so we understand, that phrase, th those three words are only used in one other place in the New Testament, and it's there to describe the marks of an apostle. So we would say, you know, does God still do small M miracles? Of course he does. God works, but does he do capital M miracles? The capital M miracles were to authenticate the apostles. So when people saw them doing that stuff, they would go, this reminds me of something, that reminds me of Jesus, and then they would listen to the word. That was the idea. So Paul isn't putting that to preclude you and I to do what we need to do. But either way, Jesus told us there's another sign. Another sign that each one of us, in fact, all of us, have to participate in. And it's the sign that he talked about in John 13, where he said, the world will know that I really came and existed by your love for one another. That's the prevailing sign to an unbelieving world, to see the love of the Christian community. Uh, John Newton, many of you know he was the author of Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? You know that? And some of you know, too, that you know, his life prior to that was a rough life, he had heard about some religion early on, but his heart got hard. He was living life on the seas. He eventually became a captain of a slave boat. He went on later to repudiate that and the vile life that he had lived as a slave boat captain. But God transformed him. 
God got a hold of him with the grace of God. And someone that knew him wrote this in his memoir. Mr. Newton could live no longer than he could love. He could live no longer than he could love. Meaning if he was living, he had to be loving. This hard-hearted guy. And then Newton once said this, Whoever has tasted of the love of Christ and has known by his own experience the need and the worth of redemption is enabled, yes, even constrained, to love his fellow creatures. He loves them at first sight. We talk about love at first sight, right? He's talking about Christian love at first sight. He will feel the warmest emotions of friendship and tenderness while he beseeches them by the tender mercies of God, even while he warns them by the terrors of God. You hear what he's saying here? It was the sign of love that he was led. And Francis Schaeffer, who was was an incredible evangelist, in his book, The Mark of a Christian, said, as you look at John 13, the mark, the defining mark of the Christian is this, love. Listen to what he says. Let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. So, you know, all of us would say that believe I need to have good answers for people. You should do that. Peter says prepare to have a reason for the hope within you. You know, are you lazy there? That's a good question. You know, do you love to like read about hockey stats or read about this and read about that? But you really don't study to go over in your mind and go, how can I be helpful? These are the questions. How can I be helpful to someone and say this in a way that's attractive and makes sense? That's what we're called to. But he says, let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. But after we have done our best to communicate, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the, listen, the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. The observable love. Um, I've told you in my testimony in becoming a Christian, that was key. When my high school teacher took a risk and said, do you want to come to a Bible study? I thought he was crazy. I thought, what in the world is he talking about? But I knew his sons, and I had been in his home, and I had seen something. Something that was real. I was talking to a church planner uh, this past week, and uh, he's just getting started, and I said, you know, I envy you. I think if I was just getting started, I would take the group that we were gathered together, and I would just say to them, let's just throw parties for a year and invite your friends. Let's just throw parties for a year and invite your friends. Because people need a chance to just get around the Christian community and see it. Some will say, no, I don't want it. But I have found over and over others that say, yeah, I don't agree with you, but I can't deny that isn't the stereotype that I've seen. And I've come to believe, too, in this day and age where you can't even really get down the, the, the road much. You know, you say to someone, can I talk to you about the Bible? I'm not saying we shouldn't stop doing apologetics about the Bible and the resurrection of the Christian faith, but I'll tell you something. Observable love, I think. Now that is undeniable. And it was holistic, not just in spiritual sign, but in social needs. You'll notice Paul says that he was on his way to deliver an offering to the poor Jewish believers. This is interesting. And the way Paul talks about it, uh, you know, Paul, catch the dynamic here. In the Christian faith, the Jewish believers were the majority culture. The Gentiles were the minority culture. For some reason, a famine, the majority culture ends itself in a place of need. And Paul says to the minority culture, 
I want you, in fact, he says, I, I want you to go and share this. In fact, he presses them. It's an obligation of grace, not of race, but of grace. Because the, the Christian faith pushes us further. It doesn't just say charity. It says, no, God's grace obligates me to care for those that are poor and oppressed. I feel obligated from the inside out. I mean, what an what a interesting way to go about it. And it asks us the question, right? It, it may be the most revealing thing in our faith here, for many of us, would be our bank statement. And not how much we make, but what we spend our stuff on. It, you know, it, it shows our loves, it shows our desires, it shows our passions, right? Our money funds the things that we care about. And I'm not saying God doesn't want us to have good gifts and nice clothes and things like that, but again, the mission, the social needs. So to close, it's not just holistic there, it's holistic too in life change. The aim of evangelism, Paul says, is the obedience of faith. That's a phrase in Romans, it's a big deal phrase, the obedience of faith. So he's viewing evangelism not prim primarily as conversion, but as life change. That's what evangelism is after. And I gave you this quote in the beginning of your bulletin. This comes from Tim Keller. You can look at it. He says, People have not been evangelized until they have ceased to be their own masters and become joyful servants of the Lord. In turn, we are to dare people to look into us deeply and see what a human life rearranged by the gospel looks like. It's a great phrase. You and I are daring people, look, and, and this is the thing why it's rearranged by the gospel. It's not rearranged by moralism or religion. Because if it's rearranged by those things, there will either be self-righteousness people see, or you'll be covering things up. But if it's by the gospel, you can open the book of your life and go, this is how needy I am, this is how desperate I am, and this is what God has done for me. And the more courage we can do that in our community groups, in our friendships here, we shouldn't be surprised to see hungry people coming to the church. And so, we're almost to the end of the book of Romans. We're going to end it next week. But I, I want you to notice where we're headed. Paul's given us all this theology in chapter 1 through 11. In chapter 12 through you know, 14, a little bit more, he's talked about, has it changed your life? And now he's asking the question, what are you doing with it? What are you going to do with it? Let's pray. Father, we pray that by the mercies of God, you would transform us into living sacrifices. And even tomorrow, uh, we would pray intentionally to love someone, to show observable love, and share the hope within us. In Christ's name, amen.